through that friendship, um, I've gotten to hear, of course, about her own life story, but also how her life has led her to a career uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, um, working for a variety of companies. Um, most recently, with a company that started last summer um, that she is leading um, that works with a drug related uh, to opioids. And so um, that is what some of our conversation will be about, um, the work that she's currently doing. And um, because of that, I thought we might just start off um, with a very general question, not um, related too personally to her life, but just kind of where we are with opioids in 2023. Now that's a big question, but I think a lot of us have heard lots of different things about the opioid crisis um, in the last decade. And um, if there's um, anyone who knows where we are with that, it's Tracy Woody right now. So yeah. yeah. Well, I think we've all heard the opioid crisis, and a lot of times because the pharmaceutical industry, right, because of Purdue Pharma and the over-prescribing of opioids. Um, and that's certainly a problem, but it's much less of a problem in terms of prescription opioids as illicit opioids. So in this country, there's about 11 million people that misuse opioids, so use them as they're not prescribed. But there are three million people, just over three million, that have something called opioid use disorder, so more of an addiction to opioids, if you will. Um, and only about one and a half million of those actually get treatment for it. So we've, we're really, um, and I'll, I'll quote this book, and I'll talk to you about the book in a moment, we're really in a different generation of drug use. So, uh, and I'll just read a quote from this book called Raising Lazarus, which we'll talk about, but America, we've had about a million overdoses over the past 15, 20 years, and that's predicted to double by the decade's end. So that, if you just imagine, that's like we have lost an entire, the entire city of San Jose, California, and soon we will lose the entire city of Houston, uh, Texas, and it's, it's not stopped. So um, opioids lead to overdose, and we hear a lot about overdoses, um, but most overdoses, 80% of overdoses, are due to fentanyl. And that's not fentanyl that our doctor prescribes. These are not prescription fentanyl. This is illicit fentanyl that comes over the border and is placed in drugs and people don't know that it's in there. So we have far moved beyond the prescription world. Um, we are now in a generation of drug users that begin with heroin and fentanyl. So it's a little bit of a brain changer. It's not the doctor writing the opioids. Thank you, thank you. Um, and as I mentioned, you have spent your career in pharmaceuticals and have worked with a variety of different drugs, some that you've just seen in their very infancy stages, some which have gone all the way through the process, been FDA approved and put on to change lives. And how was considering the job for an opioid drug that you're currently working with different? What are, what, are some, what are things that came up as you considered that position of how that might be different? Why, why it wasn't just another drug? Well, I, so to answer that, I probably do have to tell a little bit of the personal story. So I grew up in an Appalachian town in Western North Carolina. The last count I've had, I've lost 11 classmates to opioid overdose. Um, I lost a sister to an overdose uh, in September. And as we speak today, I have a nephew that's incarcerated due to opioids, and I have another nephew that just got out of prison. Or sorry, I just got out of rehab, not prison. One in prison, one in prison. So 
you know, this is very personal to me. Um, my sister was late stage addiction, and we can talk about that. And ironically, she actually overdosed after I took this job. So I always was interested in addiction. Uh, it had plagued my town, it had plagued my family. And I was working in oncology, which is a hot area of pharmaceuticals. And it was a Zoom call one night with a mentor. And uh, at this, my, my, the oncology company was getting ready to be acquired. And he said to me, what are you gonna do different? Like, what are you gonna do after this? What's your next gig? And I was like, you know, I'd really like to work in addiction. Uh, I said, I don't, you know, it's, there's not a lot in pharmaceuticals with addiction, but I'd really like to work in addiction. And he was just like, oh my God, I can't believe you never told me that. I have a friend uh, who lives in the Bay Area, really wealthy guy, made his money in commercial real estate, but lost both of his parents by the age of 16 to addiction. Uh, he got himself through Stanford without going into foster care. This is his passion. Let me connect you guys. So uh, I ended up connecting with this guy, Mark Pearson, and who had set up the Pearson Center of Addiction. He was on a board of directors of something called the Scripps Institute, which is a big research institute in San Diego. There was a lab there that was studying addiction drugs, and so we licensed those drugs and made a company out of it. Um, and so right now we're just four employees. But it was really, you know, to try to take some of my expertise in the pharmaceutical industry and pivot it towards something that I cared about and had been impacted by. I mean, we all have been impacted by oncology, not that that's not an impactful place, but I wanted to try to pivot to, to this world. And yeah. some days I'm glad I did, and other days I'm not. <laughs> so now that you're in it, and, and it sounds like the man who, you know, who started this also has this very personal experience with opioids, when you're in conversations with other leaders in the pharmaceutical industry or potential investors for the company, do you find that that personal link to opioids is really essential to moving forward with people? Or are you able to, con is it similar to other pharmaceutical drugs that this is a medical issue? Mm, no, it's completely different. And in fact, you know, we've, um, we've raised, we're, we have four employees and we have raised uh, since 2019, the company has, I wasn't there, seven and a half million from the government and about uh, seven, eight million private. That's all. That'll all be gone by July. That's, you know, this business is a very expensive business. Just to give the audience a sense, so in oncology, and this is, number is correct, um, there has been over a hundred billion, with a B, hundred billion dollars invested in startups for oncology in the last ten years. There's been a hundred and ninety million in addiction. Although overdose kills more people than gun violence and car accidents combined. So it's like there's enough overdoses that happen every day that it's like a major airline crash every single day. But you can't get anybody to invest in the space. The patients are complicated. The reimbursement world is very complex. Um, the pathophysiology of addiction. Um, so, you know, I, I just, one quote on that. Beth Macy, if anybody's watched Dope Sick on Netflix, this is her second book, which is called Raising Lazarus. And it's really a lot of it's set here in North Carolina. But she says, just to answer the question, and this is how investors view it, whether we realize it or not, no, I'm sorry, that's the wrong quote. Um, trying to find the exact quote where she talks about, oh, it's here. That's over one page. Here we go. 
This country spends five times more to incarcerate people with substance abuse disorder than it does to ever treat their medical condition. In 2019, 19 million Americans needed treatment for addiction. That's a treatment gap of 90, only 10% only of those got treated. Among the lucky few who do get treatment, black patients were far less likely than whites to have access to life-saving medications. So this is more people that have AIDS, more people that get breast cancer, but you can't get a healthcare investor to hardly touch it. So it's, it's that challenging despite, you know, despite the unmet need. Now hopefully, we've had 29 no's, but we have six more you know, pitches this week. You can all pray when we leave here that that will change. So clearly, the need for a personal connection around this type of drug, this issue, is um, is needed because even though we hear about it all the time, it seems like we turn our heads to it because we're not aware of the real statistics mm -hmm. or we choose not to be. Um, so is there a story that you'd like to share about opioids that maybe would speak to everyone here? Yeah, I think, um... I think that one of these things that this book taught me is that to really make an impact, um, and, and there are many examples in Raising Lazarus. So she goes to Mount Airy, North Carolina, to West Virginia, which has been hit hardest by the opioid crisis, and really gets up close and personal. I mean, you really have to meet these patients where they are. And it's not pretty. This is not going to visit someone, your friend with breast cancer. This is not going to visit someone um, you know, who's had other kind of, it's, it's a very complicated illness. And I get that, but I think there is hope and there are treatments. Um, I will describe our treatment because it's a little bit controversial. So the people that are most likely for an, to overdose, now we read about these kids that get a pill, they find a pill, there's a whole campaign one pill can kill, that happens, don't get me wrong. But the vast majority of people who overdose um, are people who have opioid use disorder. And you, you ask yourself the question, well, why can't you just kick it? Why can't you just kick the habit? Just don't do it, right? When you are addicted to opioids, the withdrawal is horrific. It's horrific. You talk to patients, they'll tell you it's the worst thing you've ever been through. Every bone in your body aches, you're throwing up, you have diarrhea, you are hallucinating, and one small injection of another opioid will take that away immediately. That's amazing. And that's, that's the thing. And so we look at these patients and we're like, just quit. You can just quit. But the, but the withdrawal is, is extreme. These people often die in isolation. Uh, and fentanyl, you know, kills within minutes. And, and just to, so everyone does, I don't know if and there's probably a lot of physicians in the audience, but there's, uh, does everybody understand how you die in an overdose, what happens? <laughs> we have to tell investors this because you know people think oh they have a heart attack or so you know we have everybody has opioid receptors in their brain and when you take an opioid part of pain relief is euphoria right a little bit of pain relief is just that little bit of a euphoric feeling um, what happens with for example with fentanyl is it is 50 times more potent than morphine so it's in the brain and it's really just attaching to those opioid receptors really tightly but what happens is your brain sends message 
to the back of your brain to tell your to breathe, right? You got to send the, the, mess, the brain has to tell your body to breathe. So essentially, with an overdose, you just forget to breathe. So your brain no longer sends that message. So it's just like you just go to sleep. And so, um, you know, one one positive personal story. It's got negative and positive to it. And I'll tell you about our drug. Well, let me tell you about our drug first. So our drug is a bit controversial because you hear people that get Narcan. So everybody's heard the shot or the nasal of Narcan. And basically, essentially what that does is that's kind of flooding the brain, grabbing the opioid, pulling it out of those receptors so that you live, right? You feel horrible afterwards because it precipitates withdrawal, the mixed withdrawal that I just talked about worse. But Narcan is needed. But we have more Narcan than we've ever had in the world. There's Narcan in vending machines all over Eastern North Carolina but we still have the highest rate of overdose. Narcan, just this past week, it's most likely to go over the counter. So you say, well, why are people overdosing if we have all this Narcan lying around? Well, again, it goes back to drug users usually tend to use in isolation and because fentanyl kills sometimes within less than a minute. So with heroin, you have about 30 minutes to revive someone, which is a pretty good amount of time. With, heroin, with fentanyl, you have less than two minutes. So that's why people die. So our drug is to identify those people that are at risk for an overdose. They would get a shot, and we're a monoclonal antibody, which you guys probably heard during COVID. So monoclonal antibodies have been around since the 80s. This technology is not crazy scientific. Uh, Humira, other drugs, are, there's a lot of monoclonal antibodies out there. And so essentially, we would take someone, if you were at high risk, you would get a shot, and you would not be able to overdose, in, at least in, in, in monkeys. We do study the drug in monkeys. Uh, it lasts about 40 days. This drug will probably last much longer in a human, probably two months, but at least 30 days. So all we're trying to do is keep people alive and believe that you, you can't treat somebody that's dead. And so if you take this drug, you could take elephant sizes of fentanyl and you're not gonna overdose. So essentially, it's floating around in the body, it never gets into the brain, it's a monoclonal antibody. If you were to do a drug that had fentanyl, it goes and grabs the fentanyl, like a sponge, and holds it in that sponge, I'll call it a sponge, and then it very, very, very slowly over time trickles it out. You're never gonna get high, you could never get high from, from this. And then we think because you get this slow trickle, that maybe we don't cause withdrawal, which would be huge. So 10% of all people that overdose and live um, die within 30 days because they overdose again. So we're trying to bridge people and believe that these humans deserve a bridge to other treatments that are out there. But the story, uh, to back to your question, and I'll, I'll pause, the story around that is that, you know, there, there are people that get help. There are people that survive this. But one of the things that we have to accept is that relapse is part of it. We don't kick a diabetic out of the system for going into diabetic shock because they ate too many Dunkin' Donuts or they, you know, we don't, we don't push them out of the system. That's what we do with addicts. They screw up, we, we push them out. And we've got to have a culture where we believe that they can get better, and they can. So, you're telling these stories, you're talking with folks in the industry, you're talking with people in your family that are 
a lot of your families still live in Western North Carolina. And where do you see God in all of it? Because you're talking you're in a very scientific world for a lot of hours of your week. And you spend evenings on the telephone and you get emails and we meet for coffee on Fridays. <laughs> we see each other on Sundays. But most of your time is spent in the science world. Mm -hmm. And God doesn't come up a lot during your work week. So where do you, where does it fit in and piece in? Mm -hmm. And Megan knows this, I've kind of struggled with this. Um, it's been like a questioning in my faith a bit because I see so many families, you know, that have been torn apart by addiction, just talking to a lot of families. Um, and so, it, you know, even in, even in trying to raise money for a company where I really believe that we have something meaningful, like, you know, before each presentation I say a prayer and when a rejection comes, you're like, but I think where I see God is when you go into these communities and you see these people rolling up in an F4, F-250 truck, a nurse, to help somebody in a McDonald's parking lot, uh, to put them in their car and drive them to get treatment. Um, when you go to places like Mount Airy, and some of, the, some of the things are controversial, like needle exchange, because a lot of these patients die of hepatitis and AIDS as well, and you see people, you know, nurses and churches in these small communities opening up to give, to give clean needles or to be there for, for treatment. Um, I see God in the scientists I work with. I work with, some of you might know Andy Barrett. Um, Andy is my partner. He's a PhD in addiction from Harvard. And, I mean, he's devoted his life to wanting to see treatments for addiction. A lot of people at, at you know, in Boston and a lot of the hospitals we work with that are studying our drug have devoted their life to finding treatment. So I see God in the science community um, and I see God in these really, in these small communities and around here. You could drive, you know, 30 miles either way. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that your spiritual roots and knowledge of um, what you experienced and witnessed as a child growing up um, prepared you for what you see, for, for what you see now? Well, so I grew up, you know, in a little small town, as I mentioned, in Western North Carolina, in a single family home. My mom and I lived in a, we call it a two-bedroom apartment. She worked third shift. My siblings were much older than me. My parents had split up when I was young. Um, I think I lived in seven homes by the time I was in eighth grade, not always with my mom. And nobody in my family ever went to college. And I remember as a kid, I was a decent athlete, and I remember thinking like, I think I'll go to East Tennessee State or UT because that's only like an hour or two away. And when I went to my family, they were like, no, there's no way we could afford that. We cannot afford out-of-state tuition. We can't even afford to send you in-state tuition, let alone out-of-state tuition. So I do remember, and I was very involved in my church. Um, nobody ever went to church with me. I just walked across the street to a church. And I remember coming home from church one day, and I, and I took a map out of North Carolina. And I looked at the map, and I was like, where is the farthest I can go away from this county and still be in North Carolina? Because I was afraid that if I stayed close to home, 
I'd be lingered into this world. Um, and, and, you know, opioids weren't going crazy then, but there was a lot of craziness in, in my family. And I remember looking, it was either Wilmington or East Carolina. And East Carolina gave me a scholarship, and that's where I ended up going. But that's how I made my decision. And so I've thought about that, and I've thought God must have been in that decision. There must, you know, in that moment as a 17-year-old girl, must have been involved in that decision. And then when I got to East Carolina, I had a professor that was just really took me under his wing, and he sent me to New York City to, an in, to do an internship uh, my senior year at Pfizer. And uh, at Pfizer, I had a, met another mentor who gave me a job that I did not deserve, didn't have the qualifications for, didn't have an MBA for, but he gave me a job. And it was those, you know, those kind of God moments along the way, and then that that put me in the CNS team, which was called the Central Nervous Team. So I was immediately working in depression and anxiety. And uh, so, and that kind of tracked my career. But it was that coming out of church that day, looking at that map, figuring out where I could go that get me the farthest away. But I have mixed feelings about it because, you know, I'm here now and the town is not doing well. Most of my, a lot of my family's not doing well. And you realize there's only so much you can do. And so that's where the questioning of faith sometimes comes in as well. But, so I do think there was God in those moments. How are we on time, Hadley? Well, this, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about personally in your story. And, and, I, and I do want you to be able to share a bit about um, the, the book that you've, that you've referred to. And I want you to, um, as a church, you know, what do we do? How do we respond? I mean, this is a huge topic, right? I mean, the first thing to do is to start having conversations like this to, to learn more. Um, but how, as a church, do we, what should, what more should we know? How do we respond mm -hmm. to an issue that is killing a major airline crashing every day? If that was really happening in that style, we would be <laughs> forming committees about it. And more people than COVID. So, you know, with COVID, we had an emergency vaccine and we set up clinics where people could drive through and get medication, which I'm all in support of, by the way. You know, but why haven't we done that for addicts? We've decided that for some reason that population. Um, but I think the first thing to do, as you said, is to talk about it. You know, I have parent, two parents and they're 85. They still cannot admit that my sister died of an overdose. They, they call it a heart attack. They don't, they can't own the story, right? And so I think part of it is owning the story. And I bet you anything if I went around this room that's at least half of you have been impacted by addiction in some way. You know, an uncle, an aunt, a sibling, whatever. Um, so I think start to talk about it, just like we did with HIV. If you think about back when HIV first came around, nobody wanted to talk about HIV. These were men having sex with men. That's what everybody said. Why would we ever touch that? And it took the Ryan White story, as you probably remember, for, for us to really begin you know, to talk about that. We haven't had that in overdose and addiction yet. We're, it's starting, but I think having that conversation. And then I do think, you know, I do want to, to touch on the book. It, it, I really highly recommend it. It's, oddly enough, most of it uh, is, takes place in, um, in North Carolina. So Beck Macy wrote this book called Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis. And one of the reasons that um, she called it Raising Lazarus 
is there was a, a, a minister that she met in Western North Carolina who was doing all kinds of things um, with, uh, with, with addiction. And he was going out, they were doing trailers and helping people get help, helping people get treatment. Her name, actually it says she, her name is um, Michelle Mathis. Uh, but let me just read a, a quote from Michelle. She says, or Beth says, as the Reverend Michelle Mathis, who coordinates Tim Street's outreach, so that's an outreach where they go out, bring pizza, bring people in and help them. Those, in, those who get close enough to people who use drugs may get to per personally witness the miracle of wellness, but only if they first answer the call. As with the disciples who unwrapped a raised from the dead Lazarus at Jesus' command, Reverend Mathis explained, it doesn't always smell like flowers, and you might get a little something on you, but the people who are willing to work at the face-to-face -face level get to see the miracle and look it in the eye. And I do think that quote really captures the book. I mean, part of Lazarus, you know, wasn't just Jesus raising him, but it was pulling away the stone. It was unwrapping you know, the bindings or the things that are around him. It was the community coming to Jesus, asking him to raise Lazarus. And so I think finding a way to get up close and personal, and it'll be really uncomfortable and messy, um, is, is the first step. Before we break to the next step, I'll just close us with um, the reading of, uh, from John 11. And it's the, it's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus to life. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. <clears throat> when he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Tracy, thank you. Yeah, thank it's, you. Um, it takes a lot of courage and to be vulnerable and to share um, your story. And um, on behalf of everyone here, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, Tracy made a really good point that I think has a lot to do with placing, you know, this story in the context of um, a community of faith. And so I wanted to be able, Tracy, to have a few last words, and then she's welcome to take questions. And also, if, if anyone had a, an insight or wanted to share something from your small group, I'm going to to hear that too. So. Yeah, I just, I thought it's that one of the quotes I heard recently, I was talking to Megan this yesterday on her walk, is that the opposite of addiction is community. Oh, and so I think that's important to learn because a lot of these people without meaningful work and meaningful relationships, but one of the quotes that, that um, 
that uh, Beth Macy mentions here. It says, whether we realize it or not, most of us continue blaming the victims rather than the corporations, the politicians, and the regulators who allowed the wealthy to poison our nation. Though half of Americans report believing addiction is a disease, 80% still say they prefer not to be friends, neighbors, co-workers, or in-laws with someone who has a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. So I think until we get over that and um, you know, can invite people into the community, as hard as it may be, it's going to be a hard, it's a hard <coughs> hill to climb. What are some of the things you all discussed in your in your conversations together? Okay. Do I have to ask uh, Tracy a question? Yes. Miss Tracy, I just want to ask you, as a drug addiction, does this affect during pregnancy if somebody is training it and it's going to affect the children also? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we, it's that's biblical too, right? You talk about these generational things that pass from generation to generation to generation. And yes, yeah, statistically, you're right. If your if your parent is an addict or if your parent has addiction issues, you're much more likely to have them as well. Um, it, for those of you who have teenagers uh, or adolescents, I highly recommend reading Dopamine Nation which talks about dopamine in young kids and how to try to keep that some of these high dopamine levels at bay. But you, I think you're asking me if there's more risk. But there are, it, that's absolutely statistically true. You're at much higher risk for addiction if your parents, and also if you've lived through trauma. Because, you know, drugs and alcohol work. They numb you until they don't work, right? I mean, it's, let's face it, you know, it works until it doesn't. Well, we're talking about a disease that, essentially hijacks your brain, right? And one of the things that baffles me is we, you know, we take, if you commit, if you attempt suicide and you were check in at UNC Hospital, there's a 72 hour requirement for you to stay there and get observation. It's either 48 or 72, it's, a, it's at least a period. If you come in on an overdose, you can walk out of that hospital anytime you want with absolutely no bridge treatments at all. And so we're taking people that have essentially rewired their brain hijack their brain and we're asking them to make decisions that they can't really make they're not capable of making decisions of and then we're asking them to do this in the midst of withdrawal so you know i I, there's a lot of controversy about that do you force people into care you know there's all of these different controversies but that is a baffling thing is we're asking someone who can't make we wouldn't do this to an alzheimer's patient right um but we're asking these people to make decisions which makes it very difficult and that's why i think again community and support are so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody have a question? Level of compassion. Yeah. We, uh, our little group, touched on the concerns about prevention. Where where are we with that, preventing this from beginning in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of talk about vaccines. Like, could you give someone a vaccine? And we actually have a vaccine, but we opted to pivot away from that. Um, I don't know if people are familiar with Gardasil, but Gardasil was a vaccine that was kind of controversial for, for people to give, um, and that, that we overcame that. But, I mean, prevention of addiction is really difficult. It's not like getting a COVID vaccine. Um, you know, some people do a drug one time and never want to touch it again. Some people do a drug one time and say it's the warmest blanket they've ever had. 
And so there's brain chemistry there. We don't have a we don't have a genetic, you know, we don't have a biomarker right now to really predict who's going to become addicted. We can look at family history, of course, but there's no biomarker to say you might have a, an addiction. Let's give you this drug. We 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 turned away from the vaccine because it's a very long path to approval. COVID you can't really compare because you're putting something in somebody's body to stay for a very long time. Um, so prevention is tough because we don't have a biomarker. But I think too, if we look at the communities that are most effective, and this is really you know local North Carolina. I mean it's in these extreme you know areas of isolation, right, where there's no more industry. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the, the breakdown of the community, like it's still happening in Chapel Hill. You know, my husband uh, grew up in the western part of the state and reminds me, and I grew up here, he goes, you know, this is not North Carolina. You know, drive 20 miles in every direction, and that's really what our state is. And so I would argue that, you know, more than just individual biological prevention, would it be more about the communities? And what yeah. do you do in a community to prevent this type of epidemic? Well, we know when industry leaves, it's, it, it's a big hole. So the New York Times did an article about uh, Wilkes County, which if you're driving up towards Bowling Rock, you go through Wilkes County. Wilkes County had Lowe's, the hardware store. That was where it was headquartered. That Lowe's left that county, and it had the highest unemployment rate of anywhere in the United States, and it had the highest opioid use of anywhere in the United States. So when industry leaves, oops, Siri's going to help us. When it when industry leaves and you have and you have this hole in people doing meaningful work and meaningful the meaningful work is really important you know to be able to get up and go do something each day and when you're a felon you don't have that anymore and so it's true that's a and that's what we're seeing in the extreme sides of our both in the eastern part and the western part of North Carolina. Gonna get to worship. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for Tracy. Thank you for her friend, Megan. Thank you for the work you have given Tracy and the courage she told her story this morning. We lift up to you. Um, sometimes it's hard to know what to pray. We lift up to you, oh Lord, all those who are in communities right now who feel like they don't have options, who feel like they don't have resources or community people to speak the truth in love. We pray, oh God, that however we might be able to care for them from where we are, that you would move us to hear your voice and your Holy Spirit. We pray especially for our brother Francis and his family. God, we give you thanks for holy conversations like this, and we give you thanks for this day. Guide us, and we will follow. In your holy name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you.